Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour for Monday, November the 22nd, 2021. This is Air Force veteran David Corey. Uh, my co-host Richard Hurley wasn't able to be with us, but he'll be back next week. Our special guest uh, today is retired Air Force fighter pilot, Colonel Cesar Rico Rodriguez, who will share with us what it's like to be a combat fighter pilot and also offer his advice and insights, not only for young people thinking of an Air Force career, but also for veterans after they've left the military and are making the transition back to civilian life. Uh, now, before I introduce Colonel Rodriguez, let me remind everyone that this is your show. This is a call-in show that welcomes your comments and your questions for our guests. You can call us, uh, grab your pen and paper. You can call us any time uh, during the show at one triple eight six two seven. 6008. Again, the toll-free call-in number is 1-888-627-6008. Again, 1-888-627-6008. Now, it's my privilege to introduce our guest today, Colonel Cesar Rico Rodriguez, who served for more than 25 years in the United States Air Force. He is a 1981 graduate of the Citadel where I will add he was a classmate of a good friend of mine, John Hudson. During Colonel Rodriguez's Air Force career, he served at many assignments around the world. He flew combat missions in support of the invasion of Panama in December 1989 and many more missions during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm in 1990 and 1991, during which he was credited with destroying two enemy aircraft in aerial combat. A few years later, in March of 1999, he flew missions in support of Operation Allied Force in Kosovo, where he was credited with destroying his third enemy aircraft in aerial combat, the most any U.S. military aviator has achieved since the Vietnam War. Colonel Rodriguez also deployed to Kuwait and Iraq from December 2002 to June 2003 as commander of the 332nd Expeditionary Operations Group, during Operation Southern Watch and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Colonel Rodriguez retired from active duty in December 2006. He is currently a Vice President of Raytheon Integrated Defense Systems. So Colonel Rodriguez, welcome to the Veterans News Hour. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for the help. And uh, Don, thank you for the electronic connection. It's, it's our privilege to have you uh, with us, and thank you for being on our show. Now, there's so much we can talk about to, to cover your remarkable Air Force career, but let's go back and begin in early August of 1990. Now, by that point, you've been in the Air Force for about nine years. You were an experienced F-15 fighter pilot, and just eight months earlier had flown missions in support of the invasion of Panama, now, in early August 1990, Iraq had suddenly invaded Kuwait. Uh, tell us where you were and what you were going through 
and then tell us what it was like deploying and serving as a fighter pilot in operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So, Dave, let me uh, first set the scene for where I am locally. Uh, I'm here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, the sun is about to set. It's a beautiful uh, Arizona sunset. So if anybody hears the sound of freedom in the background, it's because I have the privilege of being uh, close to the Tucson International Airport and fighters as well as commercial air- aircraft fly in there all the time. So uh, we enjoy wow. the sound of freedom here. And uh, I will just apologize to the audience if that's a little bit of a disturbance. Uh, 1990 was a very unique year for me. Uh, our wife, my wife and I, uh, we had our first uh, daughter. Uh, she was born in June. Um, I, at the time, was uh, heavily deployed to many places around the United States uh, as our squadron was the premier uh, multi-stage improvement program jet squadron. F-15 squadron in the Air Force, and so uh, everybody who was testing a new weapon or doing something new tactically, uh, they pretty much had to have us uh, on their front A-team. So we were all over the country. Uh, We got notified uh, when we were at the time at Gulfport, Mississippi, that uh, the squadron would be getting ready to deploy, and of course, nobody could tell us where we were going until we came back from Mississippi and arrived uh, at Eglin Air Force Base to uh, a flight line that was, um, it looked like the Indy uh, 500 pit row, um, except uh, there was a real mission there involved with loading up uh, air-to-air weapons, uh, loading up fuel tanks and getting F-15s ready to fly uh, uh, around the world to execute the mission uh, of then uh, what it was called Desert Shield. Uh, None of our squadron had any combat time. The uh, Even the most senior members of the wing um, had only participated in the final stages of Vietnam, so there wasn't a lot of uh, real, what I call, uh, uh, there I was uh, guidance. Uh, we did have the privilege of uh, having Colonel Hardy, uh, Colonel uh, Hardy, Tuna Hardy, a, uh, a MiG, killer from the Vietnam era in as the operations group commander who was able to give us some, uh, some, some insight into what we might be expecting. Um, but the real truth was, uh, the squadron's attention was really focused on the fold, the gap and the, and the, uh, Eastern European environment. So the middle East was not even on our cross check. And, uh, I'll be, you know, bl- bluntly honest with you. Um, if you'd have done a geography lesson in our first uh, sit-down session with the Intel team and the mission planning team, and you ask the uh, the overall question to the squadron, one, where is Saudi Arabia, and more importantly, where is Tabuk, Saudi Arabia, uh, we would have all failed that. <laughs> wow. I was, I was stationed at uh, Seymour Johnson, and I had just arrived there six months before, and when I arrived... My boss had given me a driving tour of the base and pointed out this area where all the vehicles, it was a large um, storage area with lots of vehicles painted a desert, desert, desert tan. And, uh, and I wondered why that was. And then I, and then she, she said it was the Southwest area area because we have a, we had an obligation to deploy that area. And little did I know that six months later we would be deploying there. So tell us what it was like to actually deploy, uh, to fly across the ocean. Well, uh, it, one, it was extremely painful. Uh, 
Um, but two, luckily, uh, the, the, the mission planning cells had done a fantastic job. Instead of going north uh, via the Arctic Circle, which is the, actually the shorter route from Fort Walton Beach, we actually had to go due east uh, right over the equator, uh, basically because there was a big hurricane in the North Atlantic. So uh, 12 refuelings later, after we left uh, the United States, uh, crossing the Atlantic, um, the 10th refueling was uh, right over the Straits of Gibraltar as the sun was coming up. So you can imagine uh, we were fa- we were flying east uh, and looking straight into the sun as we were trying to refuel. Uh, that was definitely the the most uh, uh, the most interesting one, I would say. But it, it was very painful. Uh, uh, Twenty two hours from the minute I strapped into the jet until the minute I got off out of the jet, and uh, it was uh, needless to say, my legs were not uh, working as, as they were when I stepped into the jet. But uh, we landed it to book, and uh, very quickly the maintenance team started to turn the jets uh, to put them on an alert status and get ready to execute the missions of Operation uh, Desert Shield. So we didn't. There, there was no no resting for anybody. We were going to turn the the jets and put crews on alert right when we landed. Now, now where where in Saudi Arabia was that base, or is that base located? So Tabuk is in the northwest sector of Saudi Arabia, near the uh, Jordan-Saudi Arabia border, and um, and so for for most of our missions, uh, especially when we were outside of uh, what they called the western sector, when we were in central or eastern sectors, uh, we would have to travel some 600 miles to get to our cap location and then start executing the mission. So it was it was like flying from Nellis Air Force Base to Fort Walton Beach, Florida, um, just to get ready to start the mission, and then you would be on cap for anything between six and eight hours, and then you would come home. So extremely long missions, um, based off of the the vastness of the terrain that we were covering. So, and this is during Desert Shield. So before the war started in January of '91, tell us more about these. Uh, these CAP missions. What does CAP stand for, and what did that? What do those missions involve? So CAP stands for Combat Air Patrol, and and our job, our first job, was uh, to prevent any Iraqi incursion into Saudi Arabian airspace. Uh, obviously, Iraq had invaded Kuwait, and nobody knew exactly what their intentions were. So the first actions that we were given as the defensive counter-air caps was to prevent any Iraqi uh, incursion by either air or land forces uh, into Saudi Arabia. That was the first uh, first mission. And uh, so it was really, uh, uh, you know, the first steps of, of the buildup required us to maintain air superiority over Saudi Arabia so that we could start bringing in these huge uh, quantities of, of, uh, of airlift assets with uh, ground forces, uh, equipment, land uh, vehicle equipment, everything that had to be flown into the country for us to execute a war uh, was going to fly in via air. So we had to protect it at all costs. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, we were also gathering uh, cr- critical intelligence with other assets that were in the air, like the rivet joint assets 
for the AWACS assets. Um, everybody was, uh, was in their role, in their approach as we were, uh, uh, preparing for what would eventually be, uh, the declaration of war, if you will, and the initiation of, of, uh, of, uh, Desert Storm. What was the flying environment like? I mean, obviously, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, uh, pretty rugged, uh, desert terrain, uh, much different than, um, you know, the eastern half of the United States, maybe more similar to, uh, to where you are now in, in, in the Tucson area. But, uh, how did that, how did the terrain there, um, you know, affect your operations? And, you know, did you all feel prepared, uh, for what you suddenly had been thrown into? Uh, let me take the second or the latter portion of that question first. The answer is yes. Uh, we were very well prepared. Uh, I think collectively as a nation, uh, we were all the beneficiaries of, uh, of, a, of an administration that was very pro-military modernization. And so we, we really did have uh, the latest and greatest equipment. And we had also been uh, exposed to, and we all participated in, some very major uh, multi, multi-force, multi-national training exercises at Nellis Air Force Base under the, uh, the, uh, the moniker of Red Flag. And so preparation-wise, we were about as ready as, uh, as we could have been, not only for Iraq, but really for any, uh, any adversary at the time. Um, the, the flying terrain of, you know, once, once you're in an F-15 and you're above 30,000 feet, uh, everything kind of looks the same. Um, it looks small. Everything looks small. The beauty of having one of the most powerful radars on a, in a fighter jet at the time was that uh, our look into uh, into Iraq uh, was pretty extensive, and it complemented the radar look that, uh, that AWACS had, so we were able to see uh, everything that they were trying to do relative to air, uh, air movements. And so, um, the hardest part for, for our transition was we were now flying, uh, you know, between six and eight or sometimes 10 hour missions. Whereas at home, um, uh, on a normal mission at Eglin, we would fly about a one hour, one plus 30 minute mission. Uh, and when we were at Red Flag, we would get some tanker support and we would fly maybe a two or three hour mission. So, uh, the, the real, uh, lesson of, of the early days of the, of the, of preparations for, uh, for Desert Storm was, you know, how do you work your butt muscles so that you can continue to get blood flowing to your legs? Wow. Now, I know uh, just from my own memories that uh, it seemed like a pretty stressful time. As you had mentioned a few minutes ago, it was the first big war that we were preparing for since Vietnam. I know there had been Panama, there had been the Grenada uh, in- invasion uh, in the 80s. But how would you describe kind of the overall um, uh, stress level and, and uh, sort of level of, of possible apprehension in those early days of Desert Shield? Well, I would say that uh, it was first, uh, uh, it was a lot of uncertainty uh, was definitely uh, prevalent at every stage of of, uh, of what was happening, whether you were in the mission planning cell or you were flying a mission 
or you were trying to communicate back to the home base that you would need X and Y equipment that you forgot to pack. So there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I, you know, I basically say, even though we had exercised uh, what people thought to be uh, events associated with war, uh, once you're doing it for real, then you really start to ask yourself the hard questions. And those hard questions generated some uncertainty. The other, the other beautiful part of this was there was a, a level of leadership that grew as a result of Desert Shield and Desert Storm that we had not uh, anticipated or we had not uh, ourselves uh, uh, groomed to be future leaders of, the, of, of our Air Force. And so young men and women um, who were uh, in a position that had uh, some uncertainty exercised extreme uh, positive leadership at, at all levels so that we really had the strength of our, of our coalition was the strength of each young airman who was making small decisions at their level. And, and those small decisions, when you start to build on top of those small ones and, and you next thing you know you realize that your team is pretty darn good and and you're you're making conscientious smart calls that uh, are driven because everybody understands the mission and and the team is is focused on mission success uh, sometimes when you're not driven by an enemy uh, there's a lot of distractions uh, that we face even in today's environment whether it be uh, those who are in uniform or those who are in business rooms, if you're not if you're not uh, finding yourself in a stressful environment, then you you get you get lazy and you you don't uh, you don't focus on the mission at hand. Uh, there was nobody getting lazy, and there was nobody not focused on the mission at hand as we were exercise or preparing through Desert Shield to exercise and, and execute Desert Storm. So it sounded like like morale was pretty high. All that training had paid off that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, you know, some people associate morale with uh, sitting around the pool and uh, and getting suntans and and uh, you know and relaxing. Uh, the morale of of our troop of our team at Tabuk, uh, that was the thirty third fighter wing and the fifty eighth tactical fighter squadron, and those who came and augmented us. The morale was extremely high because everybody was focused on the mission, and that meant for some very long days. And so the little things like a morale call back home uh, where you would have a 10, 15-minute uh, window to talk to your loved ones, you know, those things were a significant uh, boost to, the, to each individual's focus on the mission. Um, you know, you have to remember back then uh, the, the Internet really what didn't exist and we didn't have iPhones, so we we were we were we were all happy when we got our 15-minute uh, window to call home off of the one payphone that was sitting at our base. Right. And and um, now let, let's move uh, let's move forward to uh, January of 1991. Uh, Desert Shield is now uh, drawing to a close, and we're turning to Desert Storm. Tell us what you were doing. So I was actually uh, part of the last mission that flew Desert Shield. Um, 
because in parallel, uh, while we were executing uh, our normal defensive counter-air caps up north and and looking very very hard at it, did the enemy know anything that was that was being uh, that was going to happen, um, we were uh, we were uh, we we had, we had a lot of uh, what I would call extra help associated with assessing the enemy's intent. And uh, so uh, we flew that mission while uh, several of the, of the, the, the players who would that, that following morning at, at, you know, zero 300 in the uh, zero Oh 30 in the morning would start attacking Iraq. Those folks were already starting finishing up their mission planning and step into their jets and flying. So there was kind of a, a half, uh, half closure and then a half opening taking place. And so when we flew that last mission, we landed and uh, we, you know, basically the maintenance took the jets, got them ready. And within, within six hours, we launched again, my four ship. So there was no, there was not much rest anymore. And now it was going to be a continuous set of operations or 24 uh, seven. And, and uh, we would not slow down until, uh, early March, late February of that of 1991. Now, before I ask you about um, uh, your achievements in, in, in Desert Storm, we have a caller. I hope he's still there. Walter on line one. Let's take Walter's call. Walter, are you there? Yes, sir. I am. Rico, Welcome to the good show. To talk to you. Go ahead. Thank you, Rico. This Walter Frick. How you doing, sir? Hey, Walt. How you doing, buddy? We missed you the other day. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed out, but uh, hopefully uh, we'll definitely uh, get back together again here in the future. Hey, listen, well, thank, uh, you, for thank your, you for your service. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank yeah, thank you for your service and all. And I'm kind of curious as to uh, when you got ready to uh, deploy for uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, uh, how you were able to, um, you know, what did you do to uh, notify your family? How did that, you know, go over? And how did you end up, uh, you know, choosing the Air Force? Okay, so let me go to choosing the Air Force. You know, while I was at the Citadel, uh, our sophomore year, uh, they had the big uh, aviation testing program for all the services. And Jim Myers, as you remember, my roommate, uh, pulled me out of the room and said, "Hey, let's go take these uh, flying tests to see if there's a, if any one of us can go fly." And, and at the time, I was enrolled in Army ROTC, so I really wasn't thinking aviation. And so uh, I went and took the tests, and, you know, the, the rest is history. I had a high enough score to qualify for flight school. And uh, upon graduation, I started flight school in October of 1981. Um, so a little bit of uh, luck, but probably a lot more what I would call the, the discipline that had already been instilled uh, by the Citadel, both academics and the the plebe system, all of that played into kind of being able to focus on the the task at hand, which was take the test and do good, and and see how this plays out. So, uh, now as far as notifying the families, that's a good question because uh, everything was very hush hush uh, uh, when we when we got back from our current deployment uh, at Gulfport, Mississippi. My wife kind of said, what are you doing home so early? You're supposed to still be away for a week. And, uh, 
And I said, well, they recalled us. So I, I gotta, I've got to get to bed because I have a meeting early tomorrow morning. And uh, so I still hadn't said anything to her at that point. And then the next day, things started to hit the news. And she says, are you going to be doing anything related to what's on the news? And I said, yes, but I don't know where I'm going and when I'm going. So then um, the next week and a half, we had uh, a lot of preparations, both medicals and, and powers of attorney and wills, things that we had not done yet at the time. We did that for the next week, and then all of a sudden we get the marching order. Say, hey, uh, you need to take your 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 uh, your your pills so that you don't have any uh, any reactions in the air because you're going to be in the air for a long time. And then uh, and then we launched, and off we went. And like I said, 22 hours later, we landed in Saudi Arabia. Uh, before I left, I did I was able to inform my wife of where I was going. Um, but I, I couldn't tell her how long we were going to be there because nobody knew that. Uh, and of course I swore her to secrecy because, uh, at that point there was all kinds of, uh, of media outlets trying to, uh, interview spouses and, and people who, uh, you know, they, they kind of knew who was in the military and they were, they were trying to get information. So I kind of tried to defensively give her some, uh, a way out of any conversation she didn't want to be in. Sure, sure. That's understandable. Well, listen. Uh, one last question. Um, while you and your uh, your team were out in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, um, did any of your team uh, play pranks on each other? And if they did, <laughs> is there one that stands out? Well, I would say that the fighter pilot community has a very sick sense of humor in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I I would. I would, it would be an appropriate forum uh, without a couple of adult beverages in my hand and my true friends around me to share those. But, uh, yeah, the answer is yes, but I can't tell you about too many of them. <laughs> Very good. Well, Rico, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Walt. Thanks Appreciate for it. Look forward to seeing you. Same here. Take care. Thanks, uh, Walt, for calling. Um, Carl Rodriguez, uh, Let's uh, let's focus on. Uh, you've had a very remarkable career, but two particularly important days of January 1991. Tell us how your day went on January 19th of 1991. Well, January 19th started to feel like a regular day. Um, I had already been airborne for about six or seven hours. Um, on the on the 18th, I flew two times. On the 17th, I flew three times. As I mentioned, uh, it, we were flying a lot now. And so the, the body was uh, starting to uh, respond to very little sleep and a very high adrenaline spike. Any time you got close to uh, enemy borders and, you, and we would go master arm hot. Um, we started it out uh, in a defensive counter air position. And it quickly transitioned into an offensive counter air support mission. Uh, where the, uh, the combined air operations center had identified a potential, uh, underground bunker facility complex that had uh, some munitions area. And so it became the, the, the priority target of the, that afternoon. So despite what was in the air tasking order, all of the airplanes that were sitting alert 
uh, were scrambled, and that was going to be our target. Um, the mission started out with the F-15s uh, crossing the border and engaging a series of fox bats, um, and that four-ship was now uh, forced to retrograde back to the tanker area because they didn't have enough gas to make it all the way to the to the designated target area. And my wingman and I, were we were at the back end of the strike package. We were now repositioned to the front end, and we would have to fight uh, or take the strike package to the target area uh, and see how that's going to play out. Uh, as the mission progressed, uh, we had MiGs that came out of Baghdad, and we had MiGs that came out of uh, northwestern Iraq. Um, we uh, we were doing the the the, the, the locate, locate, identify, uh, and engage aspect of our mission when we very quickly realized that uh, part of the MiGs in the north, uh, their task was really more of a decoy to try and pull us into Baghdad and into the, the, the Baghdad missile engagement zone, uh, which is where they had all of their uh, high-end surface-to-air missiles. Uh, the good thing about that particular uh, assessment that, that they were pulling us in was that the last striker had already hit his bombs on target. He had called Miller time, and then it was time to get out of there. So I was about ready to abort my formation anyway. Um, but luckily, the, the Western AWACS, who was my original controller for the first six hours of flying that day, uh, saw something strange on the scope, and he gave us a heads-up call that there was pop-up contacts uh, about eight miles off of our left nine o'clock. Nine o'clock is not a position that the radar can see, so that was not a good sign. Uh, and now it became uh, a, it became a, an event, a series of events that basically training took over. Uh, when we got that initial call. I went into the defensive mode uh, because I needed to find this contact and see what we could do about it. Uh, and it just so turned out that the minute I turned hot on that threat, uh, that threat locked me up. And so now I knew I was definitely defensive. And my wingman would have to be doing some uh, very good work on his part, which he did, and uh, and eventually take out this particular MiG. Um, but the fact that they were able to surprise us like that um, when we got back and did some debriefs and did some analysis and assessments, it was very clear that Iraq, the Iraqi Air Force and Air Defense Forces, with probably some significant help from others, um, that was the day that if they could score one black eye on the U.S. or the coalition, then they thought that, uh, uh, that the world would sue for peace on their behalf and and then the war would end. Well, as it turned out, the the two MiGs that attacked my wingman and I, uh, we were both able to engage them and and take them out uh, successfully. The the two MiGs that the first warship had engaged um, came in, tried to do a sneak attack. They were identified and they were located and identified and killed. Um, and the bombers all hit their target. And so that really was the, the decisive blow of Desert Storm 
that took the wind out of out of the Iraqi Air Force and Air Defense Forces um, uh, sails. And so from then on, they were purely in the react uh, or defend mode. And as you you know well know, uh, after the 19th of January, we started to see Iraqi jets flying into Iran and and looking for safe haven there. So uh, the 19th of January sticks out as a very key key day in my uh, in my life. Um, it showed the competence of teamwork. Uh, even though we had not uh, briefed anything of this mission, uh, the AWACS controller making his call, my wingman and I executing flawless tactics went from a defensive position. We went offensive, and then we uh, and then we successfully defeated the enemy. So uh, it, it it goes back to uh, you can't you can't assume anything away when you're in training. You've got to give yourself the hardest goals possible when you're in a training environment uh, because uh, when you set those kind of goals in training, then when the heat of the battle kicks up and the adrenaline uh, forces you to rely purely on habit patterns, uh, you you now have a base that you can use uh, to execute very complex and, in our case, life-saving tactics. Wow. Now, I know uh, the 19th was a big day. Uh, fast forward a, a week later, January 26th, um, how did that day go for you? Uh, again, it started out as a normal day, uh, except that the weather from surface to about 30 to 35,000 feet uh, was solid clouds and uh, thunderstorms and what we would call in the desert the habu. Uh, the habu is a is a combination of a of a, a wet thunderstorm, but with sand all over it. So you could hear uh, the, the the pellets of sand hitting your cockpit as you were you know as you were coming into land or taking off. So it was it was as bad a, a weather day as you would ever find anywhere in the states. But we we still had the mission of uh, of protecting the assets that were uh, electronically monitoring the activities in Iraq. And so um, we were up near Baghdad when uh, we get a radio call from AWACS that there is activity uh, in the far western sector of Iraq. Um, and so when we reformed the formation, we started to head west-southwest. And, uh, and on that heading... Uh, we started to see radar contacts coming out of that western airfield uh, in Iraq. Uh, what we did know was that uh, uh, one of our coalition special operations teams had been forward deployed to that area, and and this particular individual was, you know, in a camouflage position, had been there for several days before this mission even took off, and he was visually able to confirm that there were MiG 23s starting engines and getting ready to move off the airfield. Uh, once those MiG-23s got airborne and we could pick them up on radar, then it became uh, a a very standard and traditional intercept for the F-15, where at very long range we could see uh, that it was an enemy, and very long range we could start to break out the formation of the enemy. At very long range we could electronically identify the enemy 
And then once we found ourselves within the weapons engagement zone uh, of our of the weapons that we were carrying, then we could apply uh, the lethal air power of, of beyond range, beyond visual range, air to air missiles. Um, and so when, when people listened to our tapes and saw, uh, what happened, uh, a couple comments came out of the, the debriefs. Uh, one of them, people would say, you guys sounded too quiet and too calm knowing that you were going to be, uh, employing weapons and, and ultimately killing uh, people and, and destroying aircraft. And, um, and that really came from the, the tone that was set by our flight lead, which was Rory Drager, who rest in peace. Uh, he w- he set that tone in the briefing and obviously set that tone in the execution of the mission. Uh, the second real hero of this mission, after we, we splashed the three MIGs, um, we, uh, we, we now had to work our way back south uh, to get to our tanker track, the tanker air crew that was, uh, that was our dedicated crew for that, uh, for that morning, uh, they'd been monitoring our fuel very well. And somebody on that airplane, uh, was very smart to say, listen, the F-15s that we've been supporting for the last six plus hours, they're about an hour overdue. Wherever they are, these guys are probably going to be running low on gas. So the aircraft commander of that KC-10 uh, informed the AWACS, and, and AWACS gave him a vector to the north to start coming north to shorten the distance. Uh, as we finished our intercept, uh, flight lead Rory says uh, to me, to Rico, head south, start take you your wingman to the south and start running the intercept to the tanker. And, and uh, you know, obviously the answer was yes. So I, when I snapped to south and I threw my radar out in front of me, not expecting to see anybody for a couple hundred miles, uh, I see a radar blip at about 22 or 24 miles in front of me. And uh, when I lock up that radar blip, uh, I, I can tell it's a tanker. And so I go to the tanker freak and I ask the tanker, I say, hey, are, are you guys up here inside of Iraq? He goes, yep. And we know you're low on gas. And I said, well, yes. You better start your turn because we're starting the intercept right now and my air refueling door is coming open. That's uh, how, that was the second hero of the day for me, uh, because they went above and beyond the normal call of duty, um, as we, as we actually exercise that, that air superiority mission on the 26th of January. Wow. That's, it's great anticipation too. And, uh, it's, it's sort of all those moving parts really impressive. Um, so, so that was uh, the day of, of uh, your second uh, uh, aerial um, uh, defeat of a of, uh, destroying of an enemy aircraft, right? The January twenty sixth mission. That's correct. Okay, let's uh, let's jump ahead. I know we're just in the interest of, of time. I want to cover a lot more, but let's jump ahead eight eight years. Uh, uh, the war in Kosovo. I personally, I think that's a war that's somewhat fallen off the historical radar because post 9/11. Uh, but so, if you could tell us what what that was about, and tell us specifically your role as an Air Force commander and a fighter pilot in Kosovo in, in 1999. So Kosovo represented uh, a a first in, in many cases. It was NATO's first uh, campaign to show force. Um, 
uh, in the sense of uh, an air campaign. Um, it was also uh, an opportunity uh, where the United States uh, and many of our coalition partners had had forces deployed in many places around the world. And so it was really going to show if there was the uh, a weakness in air power, it was going to be shown here. And so through some very creative mission planning and some phenomenal airmanship, uh, the coalition prepared for the 24th of, Jan- of March um, uh, in, in many ways. So as to bring this, the uh, the abilities of many of our coalition partners, at least to the point where they they wouldn't hurt themselves, that they could at least be contributing members uh, of the coalition mission. So it was a it was going to be a significant stress test, and not only that, but now we were going to face an enemy who had already read the playbook of Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and of course we didn't know how they were going to apply that. So uh, a lot of first for us, uh, the, the other, the other, what I would call super first, was that the lessons learned of Desert Storm from the technology base, uh, we were still enjoying the the advantages of administrations that were funding the military uh, technologies at, at the highest levels. So the equipment that we were flying was was the result of inputs from many of those who flew in Desert Storm on what we needed to do better about our, our weapons and our command and control and, of course, the airplanes that we were flying. The other part of this was uh, there was a significant void. Um, I felt like the really, really old guy in my squadron because there was nobody in the squadron who had any Desert Storm uh, experience. There was a lot of Desert Northern Watch and Southern Watch experience, which was very key to understanding large force package uh, tactics and 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 the intricacies that were required. But the there was not a lot of uh, of, of uh, air-to-air engagements in Northern and Southern Watch. So that aspect of of, of the of the force that was going to fly in Allied force was was kind of wondering what this going to feel like. So kind of in my job, it was first and foremost to calm uh, the many young lieutenants that we had in the squadron and say, listen, you are more than capable of handling this task. Stick to the basics of blocking and tackling of what you've learned in your F-15 training, and then, you know, let's go forward. And then for the for the young flight leads and mission commanders, it was also a, a reinforcement to say, listen, don't try and, and make this any more complex or cosmic than what it has to be. Our basic F-15 uh, doctrinal training is going to be more than enough to take on any adversary that we're going to face. Um, and it did. Uh, I think the the one area that we had uh, that surprised the majority of the people in the coalition was uh, the level of complexity of the Yugoslav Integrated Air and Missile Defenses in where they use camouflage and deception uh, way better than anybody expected to, and as a result, they were able to achieve several air to, uh, surface-to-air kills, or at least engagements that were uh, successful in destroying the airplane, but they were not successful in destroying the pilots, because in both cases, both pilots uh, were recovered. So 
so there was a lot of firsts uh, and a lot of uh, uh, great lessons to be applied uh, as as a as a coalition of of even though we had different capabilities in each in each air force's set of jets we had a coalition that was uh had a common um uh way of operating that we had been able to practice again in red flags and other other major events uh, that were multinational in nature well um there's a lot I want to cover. We've got about seven more minutes left. But before we move on to um, talking about uh, your military uh, training and then your advice to both young people as well as veterans, I want to ask you real quick about about the, the Kosovo uh, shoot-down um, and, and to sort of demonstrate for our audience the, the role of, of technology as well as uh, fighter pilot skill. Uh, can you tell us... Uh, just briefly about that that shoot down in 1999. Yes, as we were uh, executing the first uh, engagement of the war, it was going to be in the south, and it was going to be near the vicinity of Montenegro. Um, uh, part of our job was to uh, to see if the enemy was going to fly that day, and it just so happened that in the in the area that I had the responsibility for. Uh, I was able to detect the first uh, enemy MiG-29 that scrambled uh, out of the uh, out of its uh, bunkered position and was going to start flying towards the uh, to engage the lead edge of the target. Um, the intercept was was kind of I would say kind of uh, not what I would say it, it was not a complex intercept from uh, from anything that I had trained to do or been prepared to do. Uh, the complexity came in in understanding the the command and control uh, of the rules of engagement, and then also applying the the necessary uh, applying the uh, uh, employing the, the the right weapon at the right time. Um, I had detected the target well outside of sixty miles. I had completed the ID matrix with my wingman uh, well outside of forty five miles. Uh, and then at 39 nautical miles, which is the longest combat uh, air-to-air uh, missile uh, to date, uh, I employed one of the newest uh, AMRAMs that we had in the inventory, uh, which allowed me the ability to maneuver not only uh, away from the, the now-awake integrated air and missile defense systems of the Yugoslav uh, forces, but also allowed me an, uh, an escape option if I needed to, if the enemy, in fact, chose to employ a weapon against me. Uh, so that missile did everything it was supposed to do. Um, at about uh, 15 to 17 miles from my airplane, the missile engaged uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, Ira- uh, the Yugoslav MiG-29, and when it blew up, uh, it lit up the sky like uh, I have never seen before uh, because, one, we were over mountainous terrain, and two, all the mountains were covered in snow, so you can imagine the reflection of the fireball off the snow and everything. It was definitely eye-opening experience for me. Wow. Um, let's move on. I know since we don't have a whole lot of time left, I want to uh, cover a few important points. Um, what's your advice for, for young people that, that might be uh, thinking, I want to be a fighter pilot myself? Uh, what should they know? What wisdom can you impart to them? And then the follow-up question would be, 
I know you were a commander. You had you had quite a range of assignments in addition to being a fighter pilot. Uh, your perspective as a as a commander. Uh, share your thoughts uh, to veterans as they leave active duty and make the sometimes tough transition back to civilian life. Yeah, for for the youth that that is listening, I would say that uh, if you want to set your goal to be a fighter pilot, then that that really translates into you want you in the future you want to be successful because you want to own the responsibilities of tough decisions and tough preparations. And so what I would say that the best things you could do right now is, is get in, you know, academically, you, you need to be taking the hardest courses that you can take. Um, and don't be afraid, uh, of, of, of not getting all A's. Okay. I'm proof positive that a C plus, uh, high school performer and a B plus college performer can make this happen, but you, you've got to be willing to take the hard courses. Uh, to challenge your mind and be prepared uh, for what's going to happen as you as you strap on a jet and you want to do that. The second thing is, besides academics, is you need to be you need to be thinking about total physical fitness uh, from head to toe. Um, you know, uh, you just you've got to be thinking that you, your body is what's going to get you through the tough times of pulling nine Gs. Uh, and thinking uh, uh, across the spectrum of everything that has to happen, uh, what do you need to be doing? So physical fitness and academics is key, uh, number one. And and the other piece of this is educate yourself. Don't wait for somebody to 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 give you the playbook. There is no playbook uh, that's going to guarantee uh, you're going to become a fighter pilot. Um, so you need to you need to reach out and 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 uh, and have conversations uh, with those who are who are what I would call fighter pilots, both in, in skill set, um, those who are flying the jets, and then fighter pilots in performance, those who are are successful in what they are doing, uh, because that's that's really the 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 approach to this is um, to, to be a fighter pilot is not always to be flying a jet. It's about uh, leading leading uh, men and women to a successful conclusion. Now, for those who are transitioning out of the military, um, here's a couple of thoughts. Uh, if you still got education opportunities available to you, take them. Don't leave them on the table, and don't wait for tomorrow to sign up uh, to get an edu- get the education that the government's paying for. Too many of our veterans. Uh, wait till after they have left the active duty to use their their education benefits, and guess what? That's time wasted. Uh, when you are the most uh, marketable, is is the day you have you you you've given your last salute. If you wait three more years or two more years or one more year to get your master's degree or your bachelor's degree, um, you're wasting time and your your marketability is going to start diminishing. Uh, so you need to take advantage of those opportunities while you're in uniform. Secondly, when you're in uniform, don't be afraid to be uh, engaging in, in, in improvement programs towards the, the kind of career you're trying to pursue. Uh, I don't consider that a, a, a lack of loyalty. Um, 
you know, I would say that, uh, you know, there are, there are definitely assignments in the services that look and smell a lot like the, the kind of jobs that you might want to be looking for. And so take those kind of jobs on and understand that the, that, you know, the only difference between the, the CEO of, of a, of a Fortune 100 company and, and a wing commander or the command chief at the, at a base uh, is that one's wearing a uniform and the other one's wearing a business suit. So those kind of jobs and those kind of opportunities uh, are there uh, if you pursue them and, and you, you, you can see the parallel. But there's a lot of windows of opportunity that veterans need to take advantage of. And, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the first one that's going to tell you, don't wait for somebody to come spoon feed you because if you're waiting for somebody to spoon feed you uh, a solution to the future, uh, you're going to be waiting in that line by yourself for a long time. You need to take the same kind of initiatives you took to sign up and, and salute the flag as, as as you want to do in your career, second career field. And so, you know, get after it, own it, um, and and use the skills that you've learned uh, while on active duty to 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 win over uh, those folks who who uh, are interviewing you. And the last thing about the interview. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. That means <laughs> listen twice as much as you as you transmit, because the last thing you want as a as a hiring authority is for somebody to to occupy the entire conversation about there I was and this is what I did. You you need to use the two to one rule. Well, thank you so much, sir. It's been a privilege. Uh, I wish we had more time. Perhaps if you have time and interest in the future, you can join us again. I would like to thank you for uh, for all the great years of service uh, to our Air Force and for being our guest. We wish you the best and uh, appreciate you being with us, and we hope you and your family have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it, and thanks to all your audience members uh, for hanging with us today, and, and I do wish you all a blessed Thanksgiving. Stay safe, and uh, I hope to see every one of you again sometime. Thanks again, sir. Take care. God bless. Well, uh, it's time for us to go. It was a great interview with Colonel Rico Rodriguez, U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, retired. Hope you'll join us next week, same time, same station, here on bbsradio.com, Station 1. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on veterans issues. Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.